Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended. It was like nothing. It's like a normal fall on the East Coast. It was like nothing else I'd ever experienced. So I'm looking forward to getting out of here and finally uh, experiencing things that aren't just like a year of summer in a row. You know, I can't. I mean, that's you know, it's hard. Even a week in LA, I start to get a little loopy after you know day eight. You sound like Woody Allen and Annie Hall. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> the architecture, yeah. it's so inconsistent. It's so inconsistent, yeah. <laughs> what is that green light, red light joke? I, I, I've rewatched Annie Hall so many times, and the, the right turn on a red light thing has always just been like, all right, well, that's a joke, I guess. I, I, He's I innocent, but, you know, I, I just think that, that you should hold him accountable for. Well, no yeah. comment there because all sides look bad now with that other document. No, yeah. no. Oh my god, that HBO that. one was every ridiculous. every. You know what my theory is with that one? Everyone's a lunatic, including the kids, Ronan, Moses. Love makes people nuts. crazy. The HBO doc was like the best thing possible for the Woody Truthers because it was like so sloppily assembled and ridiculous that it was like you could have had a pretty straight ahead case against the guy, like at least a believable one, you know. But that that really did uh, make the Pharaohs not seem too stable, and the Pharaohs. Well, the matriarch of said Pharaoh family uh, is back on the podcast this week. We were talking about uh, Rosemary's baby last time. Oh, I thought you were going to say we just had Ronan on. Yeah, we just had Ronan on. He spilled his guts. He told me. We should have him on. We're talking about Secret Ceremony. I'd love to hear his thoughts. Exactly. You know, Uh, so we're talking about Secret Ceremony by Joseph Losey and uh, Brewster McLeod by Robert Altman. And of course, our guest is Owen Klein, the filmmaker behind uh, last year's fantastic funny pages welcome to extended clip owen thank you uh we didn't do a proper intro i guess i'm one of your hosts eddie averill and i I don't really deserve a proper intro (laughs) (laughs) uh i'm your other host for the time being jt white hopefully this is malcolm's last uh episode on the disabled list he's becoming more and more disabled every day but you know one one of these days he's gonna come right back to us i think he's gonna come back stronger than ever Uh, or more disabled than ever in a wheelchair what's going on with him so he uh, hurt his ankle, and I guess that, like, uh, he's in a long... I, I think everything in his life somehow spiraled out of control from him hurting his ankle. and he, I, He's, like, barred out now, just <laughs> well, chilling. Well, I don't want to get on his case no, on I'm, the air. I'm like, kidding. I, I, I'm, I, we're, we're having a laugh. <laughs> um, but this is, of course, the final episode of this season. We've been doing this season for so fucking long now, going forwards and backwards from 1920 to 2020, and the inverse of that as well. And we're finally meeting in the middle here in 1970, 1969. Um, We're going to start with, I think, the lesser of the two films, just to kind of get through it almost, because Secret Ceremony, it's very interesting. It's a film that's worth being in the film history textbooks as an oddity. Uh, it's a film that's worthy of discussion. It's not great, but I like it. It's a great time capsule. I chose both these movies. These are two movies, you know, Burst for Cloud and Secret Ceremony. I feel like I saw them around, you know, I, I, I don't know, I saw Burst for Cloud around the summer 2004 and loved it. And then every other view, you know, it was just like a weird mess. It's a great movie to see at like whatever, 14 or mm-hmm. something. And then 
It's a, it's a, it's great. I'm eternally mixed on both these movies, you know? Brewster McCloud is one that was like, that was when I had to track down. I found it pre uh, me finding like the real deal with Torrance because back then I like, you know, I I was like a LimeWire kid and I knew how to find the albums I liked, but I couldn't find movies online very well. And Brewster McCloud was a kind of rare film at the point, uh, at that point. So I went to, uh, a place that used to be called Eddie Brandt's Saturday Matinee. Yeah, I, I, I know that place just from visiting California in my 20s, and I would go and rent from that place. It's incredible. Yeah, that place was awesome, and there were so many movies that didn't have DVD releases at the time. Uh, and so what they would do is basically rip a VHS uh, DVD-R for you, you know, like a VHS rip on a DVD-R disc. So that's how I saw Brewster McCloud the first time. Uh, one of the first Altman movies I even saw just because it sounded so fucking weird uh, that I had to check it out. And now all these years later, I've seen, what, 35 of his movies. And coming back to it, it's just as fucking confounding. Uh, I love it, but it's just such an oddity. I, it's where do we even begin with that one? But you know what? Let's let's wait on that one. Let's let's do. Yeah, secret- we'll just bounce around. I like guess we'll maniacs. bounce around like maniacs. But I wanted to start with Secret <laughs> Ceremony. Uh JT, what was your what was your initial thoughts watching this one? This this creepy crawler by Joseph Losey? I don't know. Just obviously, like, so strange. Just like the initial like uh, conceit of it being that like. Well, one, I think it's like funny that like Liz Taylor is supposed to be like kind of like an old maid in this. <laughs> and she's like probably like I don't know. I think I looked it up and it's like. Maybe like 30s or something yeah. like that. I don't know. You you have me at incest here, and uh, that's enough to pull me in. Just to cover like the basics of it. For I feel like if you haven't seen it, it's uh, Elizabeth Taylor is a prostitute who uh, winds up meeting Mia Farrow, or, and Mia Farrow kind of like latches on to her. On and a like, bus, she's like yeah, a, on a bus. Yeah, Mia Farrow is some uh, some very uh, sad gothic woman in, in, in a black turtleneck. Yeah, you know, and black hair. And okay, also this is a year after Rosemary's Baby. It's clearly it's kind of like Baby Jane smashed with Rosemary's Baby. Kind of, yeah. It's like Universal Studios trying to capitalize off of Rosemary's Baby. It's almost like the version of Rosemary's Baby that would have been made if it was actually given to William Castle like it was originally going to be. Right. Uh, And it's just like it's of the time in a weird way where at this point, 1969, you're between eras. You're, you know, the downfall of the studio era and New Hollywood both colliding. And Losey's a great director for that because he like kind of came in at the tail end of the studio era anyway and then wasn't even around for New Hollywood. By then he was, you know, in Europe uh, and you just have all these weird. Well, that's an English. It's, a, it's an English production, right? It's all old English architecture. Super British, too. Like British to a fault, almost, if uh, your tastes are like mine. Well, what's interesting about Losey in general to me, it's like quasi blacklisted, mm-hmm. to put it shortly. Uh, and then he goes over to England. You know, he, he, I love all of those. You know, The Prowler is probably, if you actually pin me to the ground, I'd probably say The Prowler is my favorite of all of the, just, you know, that and Boy with Green Hair and all those movies. But he kind of found what became his voice with the serpent, 
And that also kind of turned him into like a capital A artiste. And that's after, you know, that's when he went over there and was like, Pinter, you know, and it's, he became, it was like, oh, okay. People suddenly realized how good this guy was at staging and blocking. For the, or I don't, I don't know exactly when people figured that out. I think Pinter's a good match for him, too. I have to check out those collaborations because they're both, yeah, very capital A artists. Well, the weirdest one, the weirdest one is, is, is Modesty Blaze. Mm, I haven't seen Pinter it. Pinter kind of helped develop, like, under the radar. But for this one, we have Mia Farrow, like, looking much younger than she does in Rosemary's Baby, but playing a character in her 20s, I guess. And, it, yeah, it's this strange thing where she's infantilized kind of weird yeah uh and you find out why later on of course when robert mitchum enters but so she she's projecting this relationship onto the uh the old maid played by elizabeth taylor and uh you know of course the old maid is taking advantage of it and living in this fancy mansion and everything and then robert mitchum shows up and you realize that the reason that mia farrow's character is acting like this is because she, I mean, you could really, you know, project onto it that she'd been like repeatedly sexually assaulted by him growing up, and uh, just like a, or at least since he was around, because he's the stepdad, I guess, of the mother who's dead. By the way, do we think that the the goatee that he wears? <laughs> do we think that I think the character <laughs> has a fake goatee? I don't think that's meant to be a real goatee. That's my theory. The goatee is like. There's a charitable reading of it, which is that, and there's the less charitable reading of it as a film, and very charitable reading of it as Mitchum, uh, as a brooding man who would not take no for an answer, because it seems like it's just him saying, no, I'm going to keep it on. Like, it's they told like, him to shave it, he's like, nah. nah. It makes Mitchum look like like a chimp, almost. Yeah, like, it's he's so like weird. halfway to the, like... Do, like a like a Planet of the Apes like <laughs> costume there. It's it's a composite, I think, of Reverend Harry Powell, obviously mm-hmm. in Night of the Hunter, because he, he it's like some sick freak loitering around Britain. It's very weird. He's always just outside of the gate and he's whistling. Yeah. He might even be. I I don't know what song he's whistling. I, I don't want. I mean that but Night he, of the Hunter character is like so. It, it, it's kind of the perfect example of what you could do in classic Hollywood with censorship just by implication and everything where that's to me, like the most menacing character in movies ever probably. (laughs) And it's like, you don't see him explicitly do anything horrible or, you know, you don't really know explicitly what he's doing, but it's way more menacing to me than any movie from, you know, post censorship era where you can actually see them do these horrible things. What about the char- What about the character that uh, Walter Houston plays in Congo? You ever see that pre-code movie Congo? I have not seen Congo. <laughs> oh well, that's a that's probably worse. That's yeah, a scarier character. I gotta character, check that it's out. Pretty, it's 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 west of Zanzibar was the the silent one that Todd Browning did, and then I don't even remember who directed Congo, but that is that is the most fucked up it's bestiality and drugs and. Uh, the manipulation of, of uh, African natives uh, through the trick trickery of magic that like, makes people think that Walter Houston is a god. It's a really, really fucked up movie. 
That sounds but, funny. Wait, is is Zanzibar JT? Is that the uh, one Browning we did like two, three years ago? Uh, I know we did one of his silent films that had a lot of uh, bad stuff with animals and uh, Africans, but it was a great movie. It was awesome. But I could see uh, a, a yeah, I'm not sure. talky version of it being equally as menacing. Um, but yeah, so this is just like such an off kilter movie right from the start, and it really just like I don't know. There's a certain type of uh, a British chiller, I guess, that it's not exactly my type of movie necessarily where, yeah, everything's just off kilter from the start and everything's, uh, you know, uh, cutting into the uh, the royal fancy uh, British life is actually, you know, you're seeing how disgusting it is and stuff like that. And, you know, it's not exactly my milieu, but I like it. It's admirable. And I think... Well, he was doing all these middle class malaise. At, yeah. You know, like, right before this is accident, you have... Um you know, Eve or Eva or what, you know, which is a movie. I, I've never, I probably saw the wrong cut of that one. I just mm-hmm. got the indicator uh, Blu-ray of it. And there's like 10 cuts off. And he's gone. Where do I even start? I saw it a long time ago, but, but yeah, it's, it's, this is like a, I don't know. It's, it's, it's right off of Rosemary's Baby. The, the movie starts with sort of a music box, fake Rosemary's mm-hmm. Baby theme. I think never returns, and then uh, they set it up with a weird. It's like a Spanish short. It's based on some Spanish short story. It's a story yeah. that won a Spanish yeah. short story contest. It's like <laughs> Espanol. It says at the bottom of it's like you know based on Espanol's winner of the whatever. But that was the only award the story won was was making this into a movie. Yeah, the melodrama doesn't really work in the mm. movie it sort of just relies on it's it's off the back of rosemary's baby and what's interesting is i was reading fucking um uh that losey you, you know that losey on losey book yeah. tom milne wrote sort of double days one of those in the series like a sam fuller book and there's a bunch of them but so that book it kind of talks about um uh it has it starts with just kind of analyzing all of losey's stuff from the beginning until you know that period and they say well you know he, he it's almost like every movie is kind of like a dress rehearsal for a uh like a masterpiece mm. in some way like he kind of it's every single one is sort of playing with the last one in a way uh and they're like and he never really it's like a movie that he never perfects but he's always playing with the same stuff and the same themes you know he developed all of those it seems like he developed all of those movies, at least the British ones, pretty, pretty hands on, you know, and but they say he never really made a perfect one. And then it ends. It's like a French film critics quote. And then the author kind of steps in and kiss ass. And he's like, oh, you know, since this has been written, accident has been made. An accident is the perfect. That's the grand sum total of all of Losey's work in a weird way. Would you say? And then, is? Which is funny because it came that book came out in 67. Secret Ceremony is 68. Yeah. And so that must have came out. And then it, in a weird way, it's like he did Accident. Maybe that is the best movie he ever did. Uh, that is sort of the grand sum of what came before. And then Secret Ceremony is like some breakdown version of, you know what I mean? Where it's like he's still kind of flailing and all those themes and shooting the house and all these weird angles and incredible blocking and some really weird cutting. Some really, really weird cutting in that movie. There's like mm-hmm. these weird flash frames of someone... If, you know, Elizabeth Taylor pushes Mia Farrow to the ground and then it'll just, in, instead of just seeing her land on the ground, it's like this quick flash frame 
of her landing and then it cuts back to me. It's weird. There's weird stuff going on. None of it quite works, but it's yeah. <laughs> all interesting. And it's almost like a weird breakdown of his style through a movie that just doesn't work. The same thing goes for Bruce McCloud. And that's why it's like movies I'm currently mixed on, but it's a weird, uh, it's like a weird distilling of the essence of both their respective directors in a way. Not to try to put too much of a package on it, because these are both, I'm eternally mixed on both these movies. I love them both. I kind of don't like them both at the same time. There's stuff that gets on my nerves about them. But they're interesting, imperfect impressions of their directors and, and in an interesting like way, a time capsule and a timestamp of who, who, where they were in their respective, respective careers. I, again, it's like watching it like very hard to pinpoint because again like there are some of it like uh what owen was saying with like the blocking and just like some of the cutting that all like stuff that like i'm excited about and interested in and like there is like i don't know there are parts i don't want to say the film has like much of a momentum to it but like it's that like these flashes of like i don't know brilliance and parts of it that really work for me are successful enough and then just also being like a, a a genuine oddity that is just like so fun even though just like i don't know like the moment the sort of like fake out uh bit where it's like uh where like uh mia Farrow's character's name which one of the like chenchi yeah like Chen-Chi. horrible disgusting horrible name, name yeah um, but like where Chenchi <laughs> is on Elizabeth Taylor and they're like, no, I knew it. You like, just like the whole, like the fake pregnancy stuff with, like, and like, the, like all the weird yeah. melodrama beats are so, yeah, I, I, it feels I just, like you just picked a bunch of melodrama beats from other movies, like on the day of shooting. It's like, well, we could do the fake pregnancy thing. And then like all the effort goes into the staging and the editing afterwards and like all the weirdness that Who comes out the of script? it. Cause it's, it's this weird short story. Mm-hmm. I didn't even. Who wrote this? Did Losey adapt it himself? He definitely George. didn't have help from Harold Pinter on this one. But there's, <laughs> but it is leaning into so much servant stuff. Yeah, George Tabori, who wrote some Hungarian yeah. uh, uh, writer. Yeah, the Hungarians. Look, man, I watched Bruce. I watched uh, <laughs> Workmeister Harmonies the other day. I've had my fill of Hungary for the last uh, for the next year or so. So I'm good there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. Where, where do we move on so fast? We don't have. We can move on fast from secret ceremony, but I don't want to move on so fast from that pervert goatee. That was yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's because like that's, what's weird about the character? It's he's, he's like a little bit doing the reverend. He's a little bit doing Bing Crosby, maybe <laughs> because he's got that like jazzy pork pie hat and this Lincoln goatee. Maybe he's is he whistling the theme song? That was something that occurred to me this time. I was watching. I was like, is he whistling the theme song outside of well, the house instead of Lee? He was whistling, just... which I think is probably a self conscious reference to M, which you know, Losi remade M, of course, and just having yes, like that's a, a good movie. Uh, that's a good remake. Yeah, I, we've been we talked about that because we talked about um, Losi's The Big Night a while back, uh, and our our guest on that one, Ethan, was talking about M, talking that one up. So I really want to see that, but I, I think that's just like. Yeah, his character seems to be like a signpost of all the crazy types of characters you could find in American cinema, and the rest of the film feels extremely British. And like, you just can't quite get Mitchum 
to go full board with the like the super duper British shit. So I feel like his character is just this weird composite of all of these like not just stuff he's done, but just like all all these weird heavies from the last twenty years of Hollywood, basically. And it's a total mishmash that doesn't work. And I think the goatee is what makes it so weird. He could never be as menacing as he has been in Cape Fear, or you know, it's just not. It's it's no comparison. But but um, have you seen the Damned? By the way, that's probably my actual favorite. I haven't seen that one. No. Okay, you got to see this. You would love this movie. Mm -hmm. It's 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 uh, it's probably the best movie that Hammer ever did. I would say. Uh, you know, in terms of non just straight up like non Dracula. Yeah, yeah. But the there's an endless amount of just it's it's in it's they call it in hammer scope, but it's just cinema scope, you know? Uh, uh, that's one of my favorite things is all of the like, you know, Shaw scope of course is one of them, but then you get yeah. to the real like low budget janky ones where it's like a one six six aspect ratio that's supposedly some super whatever like supervision uh, that that you know production company was making. Uh, even Vista Vision to me, I get that it's like kind of a medium format thing, so like that's different. But I always was weird. Vista Vision. I have a frame of a Vista Vision movie, and it's really it's it is like it's a little bit because it is just 185 right like it's a flat thing it's just on a medium format processing or something like that yeah and i think it was a different it's a different chemical process we're gonna lose everybody here but oh yeah no uh, this is actually the the people who listen to this podcast they're like stop talking about the mustache i want to know about the chemicals used to make uh, i gotta i I gotta ask my my friend bob fermanek is the you you should see the damn though. It's, it's a subject matter that made people really uncomfortable in 1961. People did not know what the hell to do with this movie. So it's like Losey got nearly blacklisted in Hollywood and then goes over and immediately makes something insane and harsh in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's like about the paranoia of lu- nuclear war on one hand and protecting children, but warping them and doing so. It's a very weird movie because it's like this this guy is kind of uh he has these kids in a cave and is they're radioactive children and it goes into this other place later in the movie but it's it starts with sort of like a blackboard jungle type movie yeah where it's like it's this leather gang of teddy you know british teddy boys you know so it's like a juvenile delinquent movie across the pond and they're doing all this weird violent crime and stuff and oliver reed He's the only guy that doesn't wear leather, and he's sort of like the uh, Malcolm McDowell of the group, and wears like a tweed jacket, and he doesn't do any, perform any of the violence. He just like, has this creepy snarl, and he's looking at you know this, his like la- his lackeys, goons beat up these people. So, but um, it's 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 one of those narratives where it's like it changes genres and the mm-hmm. story gears in the middle of the movie. Uh, and, uh, it's weirdly, it's, you think that McDonald Carey is going to straighten out these guys and then it goes into this weird copter shot when he's on a boat and then you're just in this cave and it just becomes this whole other depraved, crazy fucking movie. But I, uh, it's great. McDonald Carey from Million Great Hollywood Mm -hmm. B movies is in it and it's a good movie. Yeah, no, I mean, you even talking about it being a weirdo, like, 
delinquent ju- juvenile delinquent movie hooks me in. Any like auteur trying their hand at that always gets me. Have you seen um have you seen Robert Altman's The Delinquents? Like an early feature from him? Oh yeah. It was long a long time ago. Yeah. That it was that and then did he do Combat and Alfred Hitchcock and those shows in, in, in I can't remember who's that's one of those J D movies that just Yeah. Like, it's not a it's it's not even a particularly there's no mark of Robert Altman on that movie. It's just a bad C grade. Yeah, exactly. Uh, JD movie. <laughs> yeah, and, and like it's just literal fun exploitation movie, and it's just like it's a yeah. fun way to get your start, of course. And uh, yeah. you know, it, he would go back to like having youthful characters, you know, delinquents, if you will, later on in his movies. Uh, and I think that's a good transition to get out of this, unless there's anything else on Secret Ceremony. Uh, or Robert Mitchum's goatee that you want to mention, Owen? I just want to mention that the goatee looks like Lincoln again, and that I don't think it's meant to be a real goatee. <laughs> I think it's meant to be the character. I think the character is probably... I bet he's even in a wig. No, he's real hair. I I, I, I think that goatee is a, is is how he, he plans to lure her back in the end. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> that is oh man, what he's operating at a real low level there of like sexual predator stuff. Like he's got to do better than the the fake goatee. That's not going to lure anybody. <laughs> how, how many movies is Stanley Baker in of Joseph Lowe's? He loves Stanley Baker. I have no idea. He's in Accident and he's in Eve in that period. But have you ever seen? There's a fucking um, what's that movie called? I saw there's a British noir series at Film Farm maybe. 15 years ago called, um, you know, just, it was just Brit Noirs, but it's an insane Stanley Baker movie called Hell Drivers. And it's, it's, uh, it's by the guy who did Zulu. I can't remember the director's name. Um, Cy Enfield. Uh, what? Cy Enfield. Yeah, Cy Enfield. Cy yeah. Enfield. Yeah. It's Peggy Cummins and ba- uh, Patrick McGowan's in it. Mm-hmm. And it's just weird. He's like a psychotic, drunken trucker. But Stanley Baker is the protagonist. He's kind of supposed to be a criminal who gets out of prison. And he immediately joins this shady trucking company comprised of all these scumbags who are like... And, and I think um, Patrick McGowan's cheating the, the... He goes through this... He's like a psychotic dragster trucker. Damn. He's figured out a hack around the route money and it's just like does this really dangerous route to get to where he needs to go and scam everybody it's a really weird movie that sounds sick i'm looking at the online page for it right now in a poster and i am going to download this immediately uh this looks sick uh cy enfield uh weirdly also a magician uh how many directors are magicians only good ones probably um that's it on secret ceremony I wonder if he actually had a career as a magician. It's it's like it's listed like fourth after it's like director, producer, playwright, and magician. Wow. Yeah. I wonder. Does do you think Wells? Do you think does Wells have that on his Wikipedia? Probably. I'm sure he edited his own Wikipedia. Yeah, of course. Orson Wells. Do you think it says magician (laughs) in the first line? (laughs) (laughs) Nice, like fifty year time machine needed for this, but old man Orson Wells having Bogdanovich. uh, edit his wiki for him is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Bogdanovich editing Orson's wiki as an old man just like putting the same five stories that he told at every Q&A about Orson <laughs> would be also I was so excited for that other side of the wind and I was like alright he's the perfect person to entrust in it but then it starts 
And it, I, I just remember immediately my heart sinking. This just goes like years before the iPhone or something. It was like, what? Who? Why oh, would? Yeah. <laughs> why would this be what Orson Welles wanted? You've, you've ever they spent all this money, Kickstarter money, to make this thing. Yeah, I don't want to knock the. Yeah, no, I I the like the final product. Product. Hmm? Uh, I just uh, that that intro thing is atrocious. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, we'll we'll be right back on extension. Plain spastic colon. That's what it was, you know. Brought on by her unhealthy disrespect for sex. You know, love. She never really forgave me for treating her as though she were a woman. First time I touched her hair, she called me a pervert. I was hugely pleased. We're back on extended clip. Uh, the segment is Malcolm in the middle, but Malcolm. He's, you know, he's in our thoughts and our prayers. Uh, JT, what have you, uh, what have you been watching this week? How's it going, buddy? It's not even this week. It's fucking, we haven't recorded in so fucking long. How you, any, you watch anything good this month? Uh, yeah. I, uh, recently watched a movie from 2021. It is, uh, Limbo, uh, by Soy Chang. Uh, it's fucking sick. Like I, uh, that's my favorite it's... restaurant. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> people like PFs. Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I um, I don't know. It's a Hong Kong crime thriller. Like, uh, I was initially like, I don't know, kind of <laughs> skeptical of like digital black and white in general. Um, but I had heard a lot of good things about it. And uh, I don't know. I uh, I don't know. The, the, those boys in Hong Kong can really do a hell of a thriller. You know, and I I, know... I think the, the the being skeptical, yeah, being skeptical about digital black and white. It's always been a well founded thing, but I think people are starting to figure it out, right? I'm like, skeptical of black and white. I'm always skeptical of digital black and white, but I think I used to be like 99.9% no. Like, I won't even fucking watch it. I think people are getting a little better at it than they were like six years ago. Like, Limbo looks awesome. I watched the trailer. It looks like it's really well shot. Yeah, no, it's it's beautiful, amazing. I feel like the black and white like works really well for it's like a grimy Hong Kong standards. Like, I feel like I was like, how can they get away with this kind of thing? Because it's so, uh, I don't know, it's kind of in that grisly, I feel like, like throwback, like 80s Hong Kong, or like even, I don't know, like seven sort of style of just like gruesome violence. Like the main serial killer is this man who's like chopping off ladies' limbs? Just sh- the sheer amount of misogyny, I was surprised. And in a good way. And you way, should never. I was and like, wow. look, this might sound like a generalization. You should never be surprised by the sheer amount of misogyny in a Hong Kong action movie slash crime movie. That's just like it's gonna. No, be- I'm. I mean, for sure. But I was just like, wow, <laughs> this is fairly recent, and just like how gruesome at times it is. Like it's about yeah. uh, like th- just to give the skinny, it's like a you have team rookie cop, you have the vet cop, the veteran cop. Uh, his wife was killed by like a drug addict, like driving into uh, his wife who was like pregnant at the time. So it's similar and- to the setup of Champions, the uh, the drunk driving accident. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a classic, and they he winds up working with. Uh, 
the uh, woman. He uses uh, the woman that killed his wife as an informant to sort of find this like serial killer that's chopping up women's limbs. Sorry, I interrupted. I also no, just want no. to cut in and say I think that that Asian cinema is totally allowed to use black and white, and Americans are sh- just shouldn't. Um. Yeah. No. Everywhere there's else a, very cool, very gruesome. The killer's lair is like a bunch of like prosthetic limbs, like all piled up. Like he has one like dead body in there. It's really fun, really sick, really sick shit. Good time at the movies. Hell yeah. What about you? What about you, Eddie? I just the other day, you know, I checked out this thing, Downtown 81. This was, you know, shot in 1981, only finished in 2000. Um, by uh, Edo Bertoglio, uh, and this is like a weird fucking like. It again like doesn't fully work it's for a me. A lot of Basquiat, right? Yeah, it's it's Jean Michel Basquiat, but his voice is dubbed over by Saul Williams, which is like kind of weird. And like the actual parts where he's talking are like, I don't know, it's a little weird. But it, it it's a really lovely just like time capsule with a lot of awesome no wave stuff like. The dude from the contortions by the yeah James the James Chance footage of him doing contort yourself yeah. is great. It's There's awesome. Great stuff in that he, he's there. doing it as uh, James White in the Blacks, which he then changed the name. And uh, I don't know. You, you go out there these days as a white guy with an all black band called James White in the Blacks. Like that would be fucking hilarious. That performance. Actually, it wouldn't. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna say it would not be funny. (laughs) Wouldn't be funny. I'm just telling the general public that that's not okay. That is true. You know what? I'm gonna learn and I'm gonna grow. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's just like a, it's a really fun time capsule movie. And I think it's, it, it was my first thing of like getting into this, uh, this music series we're going to do here on extended clip, doing a little background research, you know, we're not going to do episodes on everything I watch, but I wanted to get in the music mindset. And, what if uh, I did an episode? You could, you, you could, what do you, think about you that? could do a, a music episode. You, uh, that would be awesome. That would be a cool episode. You just got, you guys just do all music related that's that's what we're gonna be doing movies. for the it's, next it's really like, just uh, an excuse to have like a jokerman style podcast well yeah exactly that's what we're gonna do for the next like month and a half and the jokerman they're friends of ours i haven't been on that show we're just trying not to steal their swag so it's like it's hard not to though because they talk about literally my favorite artists like it's it's hard not to talk about bob dylan lou reed john kale like you know, it's going to happen. You have to do it under the guise of a movie. Exactly. A uh, movie with all their plum. But another one I went to, uh, there's, of course, the very uh, infamous tape, The Cramps, live at Napa State. Uh, there was a screening of that. Like, I guess it got restored. And it was that as well as the the Mutants at Napa State performance and some whatever documentary about it uh, that was like 20 minutes long. But the actual footage, man, one of my favorite uh, concert pieces I've ever seen, like just the it's exactly what you would expect from uh, if you haven't seen it from the cramps playing at a mental hospital and uh it's one of the most like joyous and ridiculous things you'll ever see uh so definitely check that out uh owen have you watched any movies lately that are noteworthy that you want to shout out what did i watch recently i've been re-watching a lot of movies Mm -hmm. uh i watched a great movie called three godfathers 
That's a classic. Oh, that's sick. That's a yeah. classic. You know that movie? Oh, yeah. Great. John Ford, of course. No, no, no. It's John Ford uh, later. Wait, John Ford's one is what year? What year is John Ford's? I want to say 46, but I'll look it 48. up. 48. 48. Okay. I think. Three, oh, it's, so you're talking about 1936's Three Godfathers. Yes. Oh, I have it not took, seen this. I've only seen the John Ford. I would say it's better. Wow. So I'll, that's what I'll... It's, it's, it's three cowboys and a baby. Yeah, you know? it's the same premise, yeah. But... Walter Brennan? It's a okay. lot of... It's a really, really fast-paced movie in that if there's a lot of... A lot of setups and a lot of rapid cutting. I was watching it on some weird channel. Mm-hmm. I was in uh, Wildwood, New Jersey for a friend of mine's bachelor party, and instead of going to a bar, we just started watching <laughs> watching Three three Cowboys and a Baby, Three Godfathers, <laughs> on some, like, yeah, ATV-type yeah. channel for a movie. I love those, uh, like, new cable channels that are, like, channel 13.8, and it's just, like, yeah. all B-movies from the 60s or something like that. Uh, there's the one Western one. What's that one called? Grit? Grit TV? It's just twenty-four yeah. hour westerns. Maybe it was grit. I don't think it was grit TV because they were playing um, Blood on the Moon mm. before it. Well, I saw that. That was great. I've watched Robot Monster twice because a friend, my friend Bob, restored it. Nice. And I don't know if you ever seen that movie. That's one of the great bad Atomic Age, uh, low budget, Ed Wood esque kind of movies. Will Sloan just interviewed Bob. About I was about to say, I heard about it from Will Sloan very recently, yeah. This is one of those weird movies that was like, I grew up with a different version of like on, on Rhino video, mm-hmm. but um, and they, they changed a little bit. They added some weird overdubs in that version of it, and it had really bad 3D. There was like 3D glasses, but it barely worked. Mm-hmm. But now he's done a real restoration it's an amazing, it's an amazing 3D experience. There's for the, there's a lot of bubbles in the movie. And they, there was, it was a movie shot in like four days, and then I think they, they someone got a bubble machine. They're like, oh, we're doing 3D, we got to do bubbles. So, <laughs> I would only recommend this movie if you, if you have a 3D the TV, proper 3D attire. Yeah, it's, it's, it's although it plays fine in, in, in 2D. I, I, you know what? I need to invest in oh. a 3D setup. I need to. <laughs> The other movie I was drifting off to on this vacation was Medea Goes to Jail, Ooh. 2009. Oh, hell that yeah. Movie, I was kind of surprised at uh, at how, just how strange it was. I'm not going to say it's good or even... I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't want to judge it. But uh, I really... Uh, it was. It's a good movie to go to sleep to, for sure. Absolutely. Wow. There, you know, I will say that I've watched some of those movies on TV... Uh, there's a strange amount of dramatic complexity to them. Uh, there's like a lot there's, more going on, not like be, beneath the surface. There's just like a lot going on. Like there's a lot of plots going on. Uh, more plot points than like you would expect plots. than like a movie that's just like on TV all the time. You know, it's very there's a lot of a lot of tales being weaved there in the Perry verse. Yeah, but it's weirdly kind of like those cheaper. It's like they, when they make so many movies with mm-hmm. one character, it's like they almost it seems like they just budgeted out for ten movies. Yeah, and each one is going to be really cheap. But it's like that movie is what two thousand nine. It's it's um it seems low budget, but it's shot on thirty five. So it's just like really flat lighting. <laughs> the lighting is really bad, but it's yeah. shot beautifully because it's just it's shot beautifully. It's because it's film. But it's strange. It's just a strange period. 
strange period for studio comedies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that last grasp of 35 just being the industry standard, it's like you can watch so many horrible movies that are just like look so nice like i will get into loops like there's so many people on youtube that'll upload 35 millimeter scans of trailers from that era you know Mm -hmm. and i'll just be watching the trail i mean this is a bad example because i actually love the movie but like the trailer for click will reel me in uh and then i'll be just like watching late 2000s open mat 35 scans of trailers for like three hours straight it's like man those those movies, as bad as they were, it's just like compared to it, just changes the whole grading scale of movies of like everything being shot in a flat digital way now, and the just like even generic way of shooting on thirty five in the late two thousands. There's so much more texture just built into it, and it's so much more pleasurable on the eyes. It really, every you know, my opinion on this is that that you know, at least from that period, it just proves. For whatever reason, 35 studio comedies, there's something lost in the digital era. I guess mm-hmm. it's just because of the sort of inherent magic of film that, like, every little weird piece of behavior that a character, that an actor does, uh, just kind of picks up yeah. in a different way. And it just reads different and more deliberate everything on film than it does. But. I was just telling somebody the other day, like, Step Brothers looks so much better than The Big Short. They're both shot on film. It's mm-hmm. just different eras of whatever, Kodak. I don't know what they were shot. I don't know what those two movies were particularly shot on, but uh, I don't know. It's, just, it's, it's 35 is great for, for comedies. Yeah, I mean, hey, that's like the whole thing with McKay's that he runs the camera forever and lets the people improv or whatever and it's like yeah that digital... guy's a lot of film he's yeah. kodak must love him no he's like burning more film than terrence malick on the thin red line you know making a bad movie um and i like Is his comedy i love was, his comedy which movie but, was it that, uh, that terrence malick was just cutting it you know he had him sitting there with an editor who's making assemblies and just sitting there listening to green days dookie on a cd player you i know think that? that was the thin red line yeah yeah which also yeah. like mm-hmm. at the time was like I think the longest in terms of, like, feet of film ever, uh, in terms of, like, footage shot uh, mm-hmm. at that point. Um, but, hey, Adam McKay's coming up for you. But what I was getting at is the digital thing with long takes. Yeah, it allows people to just, like, riff on camera forever uh, with, like, three digital cameras set up. And you could just kind of cut together whatever the best stuff is. And it just loses cohesion. And it doesn't feel right compared to actually needing to get the thing in the right amount of takes uh but that's my uh me sounding older than i actually am complaining about the state of studio comedies segment we'll be right back on extended clip to talk about brewster mcleod was the dream to attain the ability to fly or was the dream the freedom that true flight seemed to offer man we may also touch on the mortal damage man is doing to birds' environment in comparison to the piddling nuisance birds cause man. It may someday be necessary to build enormous environmental enclosures to protect both man and birds, but if so, it is questionable whether man will allow birds in or out. 
This is like a Altman's short film Pot of Faux from, uh, what is it, 1968? I can't remember what year this is, but it's, it's like a late 90s television effort he did. It's kind of like cyberpunk stuff with hackers and... Oh, shit. It's a weird TV thing. Damn. He's very comfortable in the 90s. Like, the best work he did in the 90s seems to be TV shit. Not a big player fan. I guess like Tanner 88 is late 80s, right? Tanner 88 is 88. I was, a, I know, I was, I queued you up for that one. Yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, I wasn't sure how quickly that stuff got to your brain. Uh. <laughs> Gold Diggers of 33. What year is that? <laughs> <laughs> we are back on extended clip. It's Altman time. Um, we're talking Brewster McLeod. What year is that? 1970. Uh Another Altman, Texas movie, along with one of our favorite movies ever on the podcast, Dr. T and the Women. Uh, Both movies feature a topless woman in a public fountain uh, expressing joy. Uh, JT, you didn't exactly give this the Dr. T treatment when you were younger, did you? No, I didn't jack off to this one. Oh, okay. I, like, I think... Oh, okay, if you're actually going to say that, I will say that I did. To this I one, just have to, I was just talking about this. I'm like, I'm not going to talk about this on the podcast. But Jennifer Salton, this seems oh, Brewster, <laughs> loves that when I was 13. There you go. There you know what's really funny is we were the opposite as 13, as like a 13 to 16 year old. Like the comedy sex moaning stuff was like the most disturbing thing ever to me. Like I like comedy sex moaning made me want to throw up uh but we had talked about like very early like four years ago on the podcast uh the topic was uh movies jt jacked off to and one of them was dr t and the women uh as a young boy i mean i didn't dr t and the women was a case of like not having premium cable or i think you should no, have I might sean have had, williams like, on for an episode about he'd be good at that who subject sean williams oh you know, sean i don't i don't know does, I, I guess his reputation precedes him, though. But anyway, let's get let's get past the childish fun. Uh, you guys can just you guys yeah, can decide enough, whether to keep enough that enough beating off to movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, JT recently went viral with a tweet about uh, beating off, and uh, you know, I, I I'm glad that you carved out a lane for yourself out of this podcast. You really you really found your niche. You're making uh, me. You're making the child me proud. Yeah, right. What you know, I guess, is what they say. Yeah, right. What you know. Uh, it's podcasting with someone I love, Woody Allen. Uh, MGM <laughs> Lion. That's good. That's good. Forgetting his line, Rene Abujerne or whatever. Uh, as the right, let's, let's talk about this hippie pinko mess. <laughs> yeah, this shit is movie, insane. Uh, I I love it. I know that it doesn't work technically. Uh, like to the standards that people want it to, but I just totally it's, perfect it's in to- every other way. Yeah, flawed. totally perfect, and it's like it's a perfect. It's perfect as a comedy, but if yeah. you're looking for a story, you're, you're not going to find one. No, and it's the best. It's my favorite Altman comedy because Altman is one of those directors where, other than this movie, the out and out comedies. I I don't know. I find all of his movies very funny. So when he makes an out-and-out comedy, it doesn't usually hit the same way. And I'm thinking about Thieves Like Us. I'm thinking about MASH uh, in particular. And I like MASH a lot, but I don't I know you're a big Beyond Therapy fan. Exactly. That movie really sucks. uh, Like, I don't think MASH is nearly as funny as fucking McCabe and Mrs. Miller or The Long Goodbye, you know? Uh, And I guess California Split, you could just call that a comedy. Fine. No, he's... And that's amazing. I think the secret to to Altman in, in... 
he's kind of like a weird secret downy type of guy, mm-hmm. but he had the restraint of the studio system that he has to make dramas. And within those dramas, the restraint of the drama actually makes this, the little vignette things of picking up on this character or that character really funny, yeah. you know? Uh, the opening lecture, uh, as you know, quirky and rando as it may seem to cut to this guy uh, lecturing about birds throughout the movie, uh, the opening one about wanting to fly, man's desire to fly and uh, to float above the awful abyss feels like a very appropriate... By the way, can you pronounce that actor's name, oh, that professor's name? Oh, Give it a shot. Well, I don't have it written down, so by memory it's going to be really Albert rough. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that <laughs> Aubergineois. I can never get through it. Uh, Aubergines. I took three years <laughs> of French, man. Uh, I like great actor. I love all his movies that I've seen. Seen him in. I can't say his name. <laughs> uh, but I think the the desire to float above the awful abyss is a great uh, counterculture metaphor and like a drug metaphor, of course. Uh, and it, it's just a great like setup for how off the walls this movie is going to be and how much it's about subverting your expectations. But the thing is, like, the ultimate expectation in a comedy movie is to laugh, and this movie makes me yeah. laugh for the whole time. So it's not that much of a subversion. It's really a, a narrative subversion uh, and an editing subversion, I guess. But it's a well, fucking funny movie. I think the narrative movie. subversion is, is that he was covering his tracks. It's yeah. a book. First of all, there's like a weird... You can find it if you look at. I'm sure they they have like ten copies stacked up in Iliad out in L.A. But it's an insane book called Making. It's called like Making the Movie, I think, mm-hmm. and it's, it's the making of Brewster McCloud, and it comes with the script, mm-hmm. which has nothing to do with the final. I mean, it's just it's like a worlds apart uh, s- screenplay wise. Yeah, but um, what's interesting is uh, the book kind of chronicles the day-to-day of the movie mm-hmm. and the author kind of thinks altman is nuts and has no idea what he's doing <laughs> and he's probably right yeah in fact he is right but the, but the script <laughs> was such a mess the whole making the movie seems to to be trying to undermine it mm-hmm. and kind of explode it into something that's cool was kooky into something so un- unconventional it's just kind of insane so there isn't really a restraint on the movie, but that's its its tonal benefit, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I think that the excess of weirdness is why this is so good. Yeah, there's no restraint whatsoever. Uh, you know, you start with, obviously, that national anthem scene uh, over the opening credits, but really, the first real scene is the Stacy Keach scene uh, with him as this old man that you have Bud Court as Brewster driving around town collecting money and then just like some insane physical comedy where he's in a wheelchair causing a hundred car accidents and it's just like the most ridiculous I wonder which, whose idea that makeup was yeah because <laughs> like he looked at the end up of the already movie, in a sat, different this way this time I noticed I've seen this movie so many times but I noticed at the end when they do the whole thing uh, not to ruin anything you see him again. Yeah. He's got, it's like fat. He has like an extra chin in that version of it. He just seems like, yeah, for the finale, he wanted an extra chin. I feel like this movie is not cruel to him. Well, maybe it's cruel to him, but... He's, uh, he probably had the best time of anybody. Exactly, because the thing is, Stacey Keach already looked pretty fucked up at this point. Just so like old women making and grabbing him... money out of their bras. It's crazy. Yeah, and so that then making crazy. him just look way more fucked up is awesome. Trust your big ears, you dirty pinko. Here's your money, sir. 
I don't have to count it, do I? Oh, no, no, sir. It's all here, isn't oh, it? Oh, yes, sir. Every last bit. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah. What is that? Huh? Oh, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, Look at that. Look at that. Two big Georges right This there. leads <laughs> to the first murder, of course. And I guess, like, the loose plot here is that, you know, you have Brewster McCloud and you have Sally Kellerman. Uh, Brewster McCloud, of course, played by Bud Court. And you have Sally Kellerman as the, the mother bird uh, to his baby bird as he's living under the Astrodome and, like, building a bird mech suit to fly. Uh, and then there's also a series of murders going along uh, that seem to, like... I don't know. You don't see any strangling, so it's almost implied that, like, it's telekinetic. Like, Sally, Sally Kellerman is, like, using telekinesis to make the birds kill people almost uh just the way that like it's shot and everything is so well, the weird first, the like, first death the first death is um is the wicked witch of the west yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's she, actually it's uh what's her name um margaret, margaret hamilton. hamilton margaret hamilton yeah margaret yeah. hamilton one of, of the greats yeah she's an awful bigoted woman in this movie she's yeah, bigoted yeah. against black crows oh yeah she and then is she not dies a fan of the those black cr- and then the black crow yeah. shits all over her little red shoes a la wizard of oz that is a very funny part <laughs> that's yeah no that always kills me <laughs> The movie makes more sense to me now than it did years and years ago when I first saw it because I've seen more Altman, even though he's never made anything as unrestrained and ridiculous and off the walls as this. Uh, it's just like the accumulation of everything I've watched from him builds to all of these moments of insanity. And then this movie is just like all those moments of insanity in a row. It's incredible, like unfiltered. It, I feel like it could but only there's have an internal, to... There's an internal logic. Yeah. Maybe not to the allegory, because there's so much illusions and allegory and archetypes of okay, the Raggedy Ann imagery and uh, um, fucking uh, Wicked Witch of the West, whatever. I mean, you can slice it to the Icarus. You can slice it so many different ways. It's kind of bombards you with it. But uh, uh, I just love John Chuck as a fucking cop. Read it, cackling at... Uh, Captain America comic, which is definitely not funny. He just <laughs> it's like how he thinks that justice is fun. There's some, there's some uh, de- deliberation in choosing Captain America's thing he's like laughing at before that great uh, best car chase sequence in the movie happens. And the car chases in this are next level. Like, when I'm thinking early... It's that one. It's that one. Yeah. Like the three of them and her band. Yeah. And, and when uh, I when I think, like, comedy ship. car chases from the so. early 70s, I guess I think of, like, What's Up, Doc? You know, that finale in San Francisco is fantastic. But this has it all beat for, like, early 70s comedies for me. Like, the multitude of car crashes and the way that Altman, like, cuts them together. Like, the editing and the staging of the car crashes... It's just I don't know. He uh, he has a great instinct for that kind of thing, uh, and they're all just if you are like me and get way too much pleasure out of seeing two cars crash into each other in a movie, uh, the car chases in this will really uh, they'll do something for y'all, right? Yeah, they're funny and uh, and uh, lead nowhere. Yeah, in story <laughs> or you know, yeah, you don't really know who's chasing you and who and why yet. In the, within the story, but Sally, Cal- Sally, Cal- am I right that Sally Kellerman's uh, license plate is the one that's Bert shit? Yeah, uh, B R D S H T. And you know that was a big angle. I, I don't know if it was on U.S. posters, 
but you can find posters of it that have bird shit. Oh so yeah, the, it like the, the, the poster with like a bird shitting all over the cast. Oh yeah, shit! That's like one yes, of the big yes, posters right, of yeah. it. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Which was, you know, what's kind of cool is the the like the first one I found, you know, was like a it's just like that MGM one of those silver and red bordered tapes, mm-hmm. and then they put it out again in the eighties with like another cover, and then finally Warner Archives and I bought it when it came out. It was Doctor Kim's was the the like the Warner Archives disc that they shit out. Faster than bird shit, and, and, but it, you know all those discs are just so half baked, as you know. But um, is that the Warner Archive blue from like 2018? Uh, no, definitely not 2018. I think they put it out in like it must have been like 2012 or 13. Oh, that's the DVD then, not the Blu-ray of it. Is there a Blu-ray now? I see. I'm yeah, that was the, yeah, there's yeah. a Warner Archive Blu-ray from maybe 18 or 20, like around yeah. then. So that, what, that, but I just love that the final poster that they finally actually settled on this, and I think it's an old poster of them all getting shit on, it, and that was finally. It's like they would never put that out in the eighties, and they would never put it out on that nineties tape. That's like I don't know a big reason. Like I like because I really love this film, and I just like it. Part of the success is that like the concept of like the countercultural comedy for me has always been like something where like on paper I was like oh I like this it works but so many like 60s like 70s counter trying to do like a countercultural comedy riff just fucking suck dick yeah <laughs> but just, I don't like, think this movie is much of a you know besides uh, the like bombardment of uh, John Phillips songs mm-hmm. Uh, all through the movie, and I think that yeah. that must have been Lou Adler's doing because mm-hmm. he produced that album from around that time. You know, the the, the John, the first John Phillips solo records, great, and um, the Mamas and the Papas. So he must have hooked up. It's just funny because the next thing he's doing is is working with Leonard Cohen right after yeah. that. I just feel like in comparison to this, like another film I like, like uh, Skidoo. But like, I, I feel like it's, it's I wouldn't on, put those in the same boat. I mean, just like anarchic, like having that type of like spirit. Like I, but Skidoo is a film I, I still like, but like isn't nearly as funny as this. Like it's like trying. No, Otto Prem. That's like Otto Preminger being like pushed up against the wall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's yeah, like, yeah. And what's weird is it's not a bad period of his movies. Like, didn't he do The Cardinal maybe a year or two before? Bunny Lake uh, is only like four years before that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah but exactly. Bunny Lake no, is also a really, really confused movie that doesn't actually have a handle on its tone. It's like it kind of knows it's zany. It has Noel Coward as the like weird, the weird loner guy, but like it also doesn't, you know. And then it just loses a grip on itself entirely. I I need to go deeper into the later Preminger stuff because I'm still in favor of just like the 40s, 50s stuff, pretty much. Uh, even though I'm, I'm usually I tend toward late style for the most part, but man, something about Cardinal those... sixty three, Cardinal sixty three, okay, and Skidoo okay. is a little later, obviously. It's like sixty eight. You're for the summer love. And you got Jackie Gleason dropping acid and <laughs> envisioning uh, 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 Groucho uh, Marx's head on a screw. And uh, the ending is so the ending is so good in that movie. That's the great ending is that they sing the the credits. Down to just a costume designer, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, blah. It's yeah, pretty yeah. good. <laughs> uh, back to Brewster, I also love the uh, the super cop kind of like bullet or whatever parody 
uh, of Shaft. Yeah, Shaft. The fact yeah. that the cop's the name is Shaft, Shaft a year before Shaft came out, that rules. That's <laughs> yeah. just fucking hilarious. Uh, and like he's dr- he's supposed to be dressed like Steve McQueen with the the turtlenecks and shit, but to me he just like he looks like he brought a suitcase from like a Romare character. Like it's just all fucking like fancy boy turtlenecks and shit like that. It's pretty uh, uh, funny. Uh, 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 it just doesn't fit in at all. And of course that's the comedy of it is it's in Texas and you have this you know San Francisco cop if you know what I mean. Uh, and that's like the- Michael Murphy is such a He's so great. He's like the sturdiest thing in the movie. Yeah, I love yeah. Michael Murphy in this as Shaft. He is like, I don't know. I mean, Shelley Duvall is like super rough in this movie, but obviously. Well, this is her first movie. She, yeah. was, found, she was discovered yeah. at doing tours at the Astrodome. Which is so sick. playing herself. Yeah. And like. And she worked the, her way in as the best. Well, they're all great. I mean, like, yeah, and when I say she's super rough, it's because, obviously, like, she elevated her skill, like, with Altman, even, like, those movies, you go all the way up to three women, and it's, she's on a whole other plane, uh, but, like, this movie, she's still super good, despite being very fresh and rough. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Astrodome, the eighth wonder of the world. My name is Suzanne Ferris, and I'll be your tour guide for the next 45 minutes to an hour, so please feel free to ask questions at any time. Uh, and yeah, I would say Michael Murphy's probably the strongest overall performance as well. Um, also the guy, I love the guy that's one of my favorite of maybe the only real jutting out background Altman character thing is when they go on the, there's this scene where they go on a boat, the lost world, uh, raft expedition mm-hmm. and Shelley Duvall and Brewster McLeod are on the boat and they're talking and he, soaking in the store and then in the background it's just some weird dude talking to the widow of Burt Remsen's character oh, who yeah. died earlier cop. in the movie yeah, yeah. it's one and, of the cops who's like who knows the cop that died like it's like a buddy of his that like yeah 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 and that. he's just and he's just on that boat hitting on her <laughs> that guy you know he wasn't a good cop and like, I'm right for you it's really funny this movie is fucking filled with that kind of stuff. Like, it really is, to me, the funniest Altman, even if it's not like... It's like up. It's just like a... Yeah. It's like everything sort of connects, but it almost has the excuse that nothing connects. Yeah. So then it's just like, oh, that connected to the last scene. It's really like loopy and just throwing you around from this character, like Murphy character, Bruce McLeod, to Jennifer Salt, to Sally Kellerman. You're just all over the place. I love how in the climactic car chase, once they start like driving really slow over the bridge, it switches to that like super old timey comedy music, like music that would be in like a short, a silent film about a train chase or something like that. Uh, it's such a ridiculous shot. Yeah. It gets each car in profile going across that <laughs> cuts to the super, super, super wide uh, of the three. And you just see them all three cars just a split second. It's just such a weird, there's a lot so of weird much, choices so much like surprising. that. Like a scene will just end with a button. You think that the scene is just all the staging, all the staging, and then he just zooms in on like whatever uh, security camera snapping a picture. <laughs> There's always like a great button and he does something crazy with the zoom and that concludes almost every scene. Yeah, I mean, just the, in general, his work in the 70s was so good at that of just, like, you think the camera is aimlessly roving until you realize where it ends up, and it's just a ridiculous thing. Surprise, it's a zoom lens. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Surprise, he has, you know, three cameras kind of roving around the edge of set, and he could capture a bunch of crazy shit going on at once. (laughs) 
Uh, one of the best. Um, you know what's also crazy about this movie is it's off the back of MASH. Yeah. You know, he's like, you know, MGM comes and says, gives him carte blanche. He makes this. It bombs. Everybody hates it. And then, uh, you know, uh, instead of, and it doesn't, you know, and it tanks. And then, uh, but he's safe because he's already making McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. And he's like, set up the next movie. And it's so far away, too. He could literally escape to go shoot that movie in the snow. You know, like, uh, they're not going to get a hold of him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. He did that a lot. Now that you think about it, it's like, wasn't wasn't uh, Popeye an island in the Philippines? Popeye is in Malta. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Images is in the middle of fucking nowhere. There's, there's actually a story of Popeye that, uh, you know, I can't remember uh, Robert Altman's uh, very sweet uh, wife's name. She did like a MoMA. She came to MoMA for a Popeye screening and talked after it and just talked about, you know, it was Popeye was written by Jules Pfeiffer, mm-hmm. who, you know, at that time was like, he had already published a book on like, you know, the great comic book heroes and stuff. And he did all this profiling of all the comics and Popeye. And, you know, and he really was trying to write an ECC group tribute who was mm-hmm. the guy who originally did the Popeye dailies and created it and the theater blah 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 but he uh, was trying to set it up where it's like where it, it like it, it's as if it's sort of in pieces but it's all a continuing Popeye strip but it's a whole thing is like punctuated by punchlines that's why it doesn't work because yeah. the da- <laughs> daily comics <laughs> like a movie as daily comics is a really original wild idea and it's cool that Someone as sort of formal as Jules Pfeiffer was going to try to execute that. But Pfeiffer got pissed because he finally caught wind of the dailies, uh, you know, which he always, you know, almost always screened dailies for mm-hmm. the actors. And apparently he was doing it on the island like that, too. Like it just set up in Popeye Island, whatever, wherever the theater was that Popeye, something. They had some setup running the dailies. Anyway, Jules Pfeiffer was so pissed that he wasn't. You, you know, actually executing this script that he was a careful, precise kind of ECC tribute, flew over to wherever the fuck island they were at. Was it Thailand? I think it was remember. Malta. An right? island off of... Hmm? Malta. And it's still there, decaying. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's like a tourist trap. It's a great, it's like a tourist a trap. great uh, trip. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it would cost to get to Popeye Island. <laughs> But also, whatever, yeah, he showed up and there's no end to that story. He was just like, why aren't you shooting my script? And like flew all the way there to scream at him. Brewster McCloud, the ending, iconic, of course. Uh, by the way, I, I was thinking about like what other movies kind of climax at a major uh, American sports stadium? Because uh, I was thinking, obviously, like there's a lot of sports movies that do, but I'm not counting those. But other than sports movies, I have this and The Town, uh, the Ben Affleck movie. Uh, but I can't really think of any other ones, but I like that. That are set at a stadium? Yeah, at a stadium, but not, it's like the climax of the movie is at a sports stadium, but it's not a sports movie. That's the very narrow category I'm making right now. I have this and the town. That's all I could think of. Oh, uh, I, I have another for you. I'll give you a hint. It has Leslie Nielsen in it. Oh, uh, fucking the, uh, uh. Naked Gun, Naked Gun, Dodger Stadium. Naked Gun 1. Exactly. Dodger Stadium. (laughs) Which also, most unrealistic thing, it's a fully 
American League game playing at Dodger Stadium, even as like a 10 year old, I was like, you can't do that. That's not allowed. You can't do that in a movie. <laughs> it's unrealistic. They wouldn't do that. Uh, everything else in the movie realistic, but you can't have two American League teams playing at Dodger Stadium. That doesn't happen. Anyway, I don't know anything about sports, but that's just a movie that, <laughs> that is the only movie I could think of. That was that's a great poll. I I, I have very uh, fond memories of that. I I have it would be interesting. I I have no relationship to sports. Mm-hmm. Watched like Knicks games over my grandfather's shoulder a little bit when I was a kid, but beyond that, never like clicked with me. Mm-hmm. Sports. I was always like specifically anti sports as a kid. Okay, but just wanted to be inside. Yeah, I like like three sports movies. Like, a lot. It's like Slapshot, yeah. Bad News Bears. Bad News Bears is and, a classic, um, of course. Slapshot is a classic. Slapshot is amazing. Slapshot's amazing. And Semi-Tough is like another one of my favorite movies. Where For whatever reason, I go back to it. I don't like romantic movies. I don't like sports movies. Like, too much, per yeah. se. You know? Whatever it is about it, the, like, the, the, the romance in that movie and the dynamic is really interesting. Do you like all the marbles? The Aldrich wrestling movie yeah i like that movie i wouldn't consider that a sports movie but well (laughs) hey hey there's a lot of lady wrestlers who would be very offended by that yeah (laughs) (laughs) i like all the all the marbles i don't i don't know what i always think about this but i don't know what robert aldrich's career adds up to really it's a weird weird one yeah because he did all these different influential movies but if you actually try to thread them together with something what does baby jane have to do with the Angry Hills, which was and, you know and what, I mean? what do those have to do with the sports and then movies? All the marbles, yeah. Like he made multiple sports movies that rule, but like they don't have anything to do with Baby Jane, obviously. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just I've never even cracked like an Aldrich on Aldrich. I'm, kind I'm of sure thing. there's multiple Aldriches on Aldriches <laughs> out there uh, that you could look into. I, I there's a lot of people who hold him in much higher esteem. Uh, no, I know, I know that. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, look, no, all I'm saying is he's. I mean, the guy has. Like masterpieces, and even even the weird, like smaller, like B entries, you know, of the fifties are really interesting. Yeah, I'm just saying, I I just I haven't really what his thing is doesn't really. Yeah, it hasn't come together as a statement. You can't make a thesis statement. No, no, or yeah, or or just like some yeah, you know, reading this Mosey on Mosey book again. God, that's the thing about him. I love. I love those early movies. The 50s movies are so awesome. You know, M is one of them. Mm-hmm. What year is M again? I think it's right after The Big Night, so 52 or 3. 51. I think it's 51. Oh, okay. Same um, year as M. Uh, yeah. uh, the Big Night then, yeah. Once you get to once you get to The Servant and he's working with Harold Pinter, you're not going to get any of those movies again because it's like more of like a capital A artiste at mm-hmm. that point. And then the ceiling that he hits is like Secret Ceremony. And then I think he gets really interesting in the 70s. 60s is not a, it's, he, I don't know, he, Eve, whatever, you know, I don't know. Accident's awesome. What else? Oh, who cares? Why are we going back on Losey? Yeah, no, Losey's L- in the rear view. We've done, yeah, we've yeah, done two Losey movies this season. Honestly, both of them were like good and worthwhile of conversation, but he's not exactly like in sports terms, you know, he's not putting up the efficiency numbers that uh, Fritz Lang put up for our podcast so far. I'll put it that way. Um, but back back to wrapping up Brewster McCloud. Yeah, I think just the ending is like, honestly, I mean, the flying part is awesome. But the end credits with the greatest show on earth stuff, I feel like there's kind of some vague stuff about spectacle and whatnot. That's like, 
yeah, there's vague thematic stuff that I just don't really uh, care about that much, but it's fun and funny. Uh, so it's not like a perfect ending, but it's a it's a very serviceable one for sure. Very satisfying ending. The flying, the flying rules. Really moving. I yeah. love it the coverage. Like he knew he was saving the best for last. Yeah. You know, really, another really weird thing about the, this movie is that the the second unit director, who probably did a lot of the cohesive work in the movie, like those chase sequences. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know. I don't remember. I'll look the book again. But the uh, I wonder. That guy's also the editor. Oh wow! That so actually makes sense. The guy did all that because he's like that guy probably has, is the only person that has any idea of what cohesively this put. You know, I could imagine just Solomon just throwing. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I'll give it to the guy. Who did the yeah, exactly. Maybe it's a friend of his. I have no idea. That that is incredible because uh, the Explains second unit stuff coming together. It's like it, it's it's a lot to handle for Altman at his most uh, epically random. Um, so. Any uh, any final thoughts on Brewster McCloud, JT? Yeah, no, I love it. It's just, I, I don't know, it's just funny and chaotic. And at times, it's all of the things I really want in a movie. Uh, so, I don't know, I've loved it since I first saw it. I also, I mean, we were talking about Mitchum earlier in the first half. And uh, I, I, I just want to mention just like, the screen presence and like look of Bud Court, like anything that like Bud Court is in, I'm just like transfixed is like the oldest little boy possible. Just like it's, there's something about the way he looks that yeah. like, I can't, uh, I don't know. I can't look away. Always on the um, search for the oldest little boy possible. <laughs> I'm just and not found on him. the search. I'm just saying that's what like, that's what he looks like. I, I want to leave you with this because mm-hmm. I found this. Do you guys ever uh, dick around on newspapers.com? Not, no, not particularly, I, I, but I that sounds that. interesting. I don't, I don't have a subscription to the Times, but I do have a subscription, a monthly subscription to the site. It's great. It's newspapers.com. You can find any, like hundreds of thousands of newspapers. You search anything. For like historic you know, archives. Date. Huh? Historic archives or new ones? Old, old newspapers. Okay, good. But they have okay. new, new, newspapers too. It's like, you know, they just have some insane deals with syndicates probably mm-hmm. but uh i found this review of rex reads in i'm not gonna read the review i just it's an interesting uh, i'm not gonna summarize it but <laughs> what i did learn from it i can't remember if he liked it or not actually what was cool about it was the movie premiered at the astrodome yeah yeah did you know that yes it's did you already say that I, we actually didn't say that. We should have said okay, that. This is a delirious conversation. <laughs> the editing will... I'll, I'll throw it to our second unit director to throw this conversation together. It'll make more sense. Yeah, no. I read... It's it's mentioned on Wikipedia with a very funny sentence that says, an audience of 35,000 was anticipated. And then, like, there's no follow-up about, like, how, how many people saw the fucking movie at the Astrodome? <laughs> that was when the population was... 38,000. <laughs> you know, it's a really weird review of this. And I, I love him, but Dave Kerr's capsule of this uh, says that it's loose and simple-minded in a generally pleasing way. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the Fellini-esque ending seems a bit of a betrayal. I don't know, but that's like, that's a bit much, Dave. Uh, but you know what? Dave Kerr, once in a while, we got to disagree. But as long as he still follows me on Twitter and exclusively likes my tweets about Diet Coke, 
He's the best critic of all time in my book. Uh, my favorite interaction with a film critic ever is him doing that. It's only if I post something about Jerry Lewis or Diet Coke, he will throw me a fave no matter what. Do you think that's an algorithm? Uh, Do you think he's just, they just, it's just a, people, you know, it's just his phone listening. He's like, oh, he's Diet Coke. Oh, he talks about it a lot. He tweets about it a lot. And then your tweets come. I don't want, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to assume I don't wanna... Apple's security on Dave Kerr's <laughs> life, but I might. All right. Uh, well, we're oh, done. I, I think we're all done here. Owen, thank you for coming on the podcast. It took long enough to get you, but this was a fantastic time. And you have uh, um, you, you you directed a movie. You directed a movie called Funny Pages. That's uh really awesome, and people can watch it can they buy a dvd or a, a something like that of funny pages uh, blue blu-ray coming soon cool, cool. Uh, there's a uk yeah. blu-ray there's a uk blu-ray from curzon cool next time on extended clip we will be uh in the full swing of the music series and the first movie we are going to talk about is 24 hour party people and it is going to be a great episode we will see you next time Oh, oh, God.